0: Hey, thanks for tuning in to episode 14 of the rostrovina Project. Today's guest is a comedian and former co-host of the BBC podcast No Country for Young Women with Monty Onaniga. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Sadia Azmat.
1: Okay, so this is a new thing you're doing. This is it like a new podcast, or you've been doing it for a while? Well,
0: uh, technically, the first two episodes I did like a year before <laughs> the others. Okay, and I'm just I'm a horrible procrastinator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: as you do. <laughs> and no, then the others have
0: all been since lockdown. Yeah.
1: Oh, cool. And where are you based?
0: I'm based in Brighton. Yeah. How about you?
1: Oh, cool. I have a friend in Brighton, Dan Jones. He's just moved there. I'm London at the minute. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it's like um, my friend—he's uh, a comedian. He just moved to Brighton, um, it's like I think in July, because you know uh, London's not really London right now. So it's just, <laughs> he's loving Brighton. It's, it's, it's I've gigged there a few times. It's really nice.
0: Okay, where did you play?
1: Um, I did the Voodoo Alex Voodoo. Oh, I oh. want to say Voodoo Room, but it's not the Voodoo Rooms. It's just the Alex. Uh,
0: I know he um, means. Uh... He runs that night. Is it see you next Tuesday?
1: Um. I Yes. 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 That's the one. Yeah. Um. I got upgraded to do this. I think it was a Friday night there as well, which was really fun. I also did like a funny women night there. Um. I think it was like, Comedia. Oh yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, that was nice as well. I think your audiences are quite nice. Um. So that's not always helpful as a comedian. Like it, it can be, but sometimes if they're just too nice, it's like, well, you're fucking too nice, isn't it? does that make sense you know what i mean like you don't have to work for it whereas i think london audiences are the opposite which is also very well is way more detrimental because they just don't want to laugh at anything and they're just totally judging you like because they feel like there has to be a moral compass or or kind of like I don't know. They just don't know how to loosen up. Like, they just are afraid of like, oh, if I laugh at that, does that make me a bad person? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I find that so weird because you can't help what you laugh at.
1: Yeah, well, you shouldn't have to edit yourself for real but like i mean i've when i've gigged outside of london it's been so refreshing like the stand at the beginning of i think this year um, it's been a weird year but yeah like newcastle was unreal so 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 fun um and i was like if i lived here and i was able to like play with these audiences the material that you'd be able to build up would be brilliant but i think because in london like half of the battle is like bringing down their defenses and making them feel at ease then then the material you know is some of it but like you're not you're not able to really i suppose play around as much
0: that's strange i that's not saying i've really i haven't gigged in london at all so i don't know about that but um
1: come it's great, <laughs>
0: it's great. you're not selling it <laughs> i need to be funny here first I'm
1: no. well no you i'm sure i'm sure you are i'm sure i think i think it's interesting isn't it because i think um every time i bombed like the next gig after a bomb is it's always better so you definitely learn from from a bad gig you do because um once you hit that like it just it's not even a conscious thing like you're sharper the next time you know you're ready for it you're just like you you, you're just so ready you're like the terminator but like yeah it's just i don't know it's this it's a fun thing it's a fun thing Uh,
0: so what did working in a call center teach you about dealing with hecklers
1: They In a call centre, people can't see you. And and so uh, it's a little bit different. I think it makes you choose your words. I think every conversation you have with anybody in whatever platform will help you because I think ultimately dealing with hecklers and and audiences is about people management. So it was, you know, in a call centre, it was kind of like sizing up your customer. Who do we have here? Do we have someone who's already um you know a real a real kind of um into this organization and they don't need much selling or do we have the skeptic who do we have here what do they want and how do i make them think that they're going to get that even if they are or aren't because that's the business of, of, you know, call centering is, is to kind of, you know, see, it's the shine of things, isn't it? So I think any interaction with people can can help you if you consciously think about it enough. Because I think what I learned early on is, is, is not to kind of let a heckler throw you. A heckler is really just someone who's really into it and is trying to get involved. Now, that can be fun, but also Sometimes they're too involved or drunk, and you need to kind of appe- you need to get them to shut up so that the rest of the audience who is also invested but politely know- knowing what their role is, which is to listen, uh doesn't have a bad show or, or also gets to have an enjoyable night. So I think it's not good to kind of. It depends on what what it is that they've said as well, but I think a little interaction with them is good, but. It's about holding your ground and and letting them know who's holding the mic.
0: Did you ever used to think up any like mad comebacks when you were in the call center that you couldn't say?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, in a call center, right? I guess I sound English or British, right? And they were it was at the time where there was so much call centres being outsourced to India. And so a lot of the English customers would phone up and they'd be like, Oh, it's so good to speak to England which is fine, but I'm also Indian. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, you know what I mean? So it kind of gave me the, the, the best of both worlds, really, because I had a happy customer because he wasn't speaking to India, even though kind of you could say he was. But it's just, I suppose it's about having an easy life. You don't need to take it all on and it certainly wouldn't help you because all the calls are listened to. And so if someone was listening back to my call and I tried to tell them about diversity or something, I don't think that would go down very well. So if you're winning, don't don't shoot yourself in the foot, like, you know. Also, I guess on Hecklers, maybe not from Call Center, but I think sometimes two things, right? First of all, they can repeat it, because repetition is always funny in comedy. But also if you haven't quite heard it or if if they weren't loud enough for the whole room to hear, there's no point in you getting a comeback in when they didn't hear it. So you repeating it or, or making sure what they said was audible enough so that when you do get that killer line back, the whole audience is on your side and and then they basically shut the heckler up you know because it's kind of like a a ko
0: does that give you an extra few seconds to think of something to
1: say back as well (laughs) yeah it it really does i think so when you're the comedian the audience is kind of vicariously seeing things through your eyes and so if you're cool calm and collected that's so cool isn't it it's like you're you're like the james bond up there and um so yeah i think it's just about owning it. And then, you know, sometimes you're you you know going to get a, a wise guy and, and just owning that you kind of maybe didn't win that one. And, and that's cool as well. But I think it's about the approach, especially not getting upset by it because that, that just has wiki all over it. Because we're in business of talking. So if if someone's talking to you, then it's just, a, it's, just a, it's just a chat. You know what I mean? Like I think only if you take yourself so seriously, like perhaps people do at the beginning that you're like this is my time it's my five minutes blah, blah, blah. then you know if, if you let it get to you you're kind of like you know you might not have the audience on your side as much
0: yeah that's strange uh that's that's good advice though because i'm only uh just starting out with open mics while i was prior to lockdown how
1: cool that's really really good have you done any of the zoom gigs
0: no i haven't no have you that's
1: good too no I try not to I find it difficult I think the thing with stand-up is that you you know what makes it special is that it's there live with the audience and so I mean don't get me wrong someone wanted to cut me a big check so I wouldn't say no but they're not so hence why I've not really been doing
0: it <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny how did you start out in comedy
1: okay honestly I was writing a lot um at the beginning and i just didn't know what to do with it and i was really scared to do stand up to be honest um i would look online and see the odd competitions and stuff and i was like there's no way i'm going to do that but then i bumped into a comedian and they were like oh it's so easy like you know you just do your first one It's the, just get that out of the way and then um yeah basically it, it just feels like a bigger deal uh, when you haven't done one but once you get the first one out of the way you kind of like it's not a thing anymore so I I got the first one in and it went all right um they laughed there were 70 people and I think yeah I think if you break the seal it's really weird because I think in this country um public speaking is like one of the biggest fears up there with like death and stuff so I recommend it to anybody just even if, if you don't want to do it as a career like just to to kind of do the... public, Well, I, I think I should take that back. I don't want there to be that many stand-ups, to be honest with you. I think everybody at the moment <laughs> thinks they're stand-ups, you know, on, on social media and stuff, and it feels like, well, wait a minute, aren't you meant to be a serious politician? Do your job. So <laughs> I, I, I take that back. I don't think, you know, I don't. let's not have a whole world of comedians, but it feels remarkable once you've done it because it's so uncommon, and um, it's certainly character-building,
0: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, Who were like your comedy influences or who did you find funny growing up?
1: Okay, so growing up, I really, like, really loved Chris Rock because Mm. I would watch his stand-ups and it felt very naughty, the things that he was saying, although very truthful. Um, And there was a a big appeal in, in the honesty that he was saying because it felt like the things that we shy away from in real life. So... There was a lot of Chris Rock and Bill Hicks when I was younger. As I kind of you know, became more familiar with the comedy world then, you know, there's the classics like Kinison, um, Chappelle, uh Louis C. K. Is, is genius. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot. But typically Americans, comedians, I feel like they they kind of really know what they're doing on a real big scale. Um, Sam J. as well, she's recent. Um, I think she's amazing.
0: I haven't heard of her.
1: She's new, but yeah, if you have Netflix, I highly recommend her special 3 a.m. in the morning. Oh, okay. It's funny. Is she American? Yeah. <laughs> so many Americans. So many I I feel like they just um, don't shy away from issues that, like, for example, race. They they don't shy away from it, um, as we do in this country, necessarily. Um, not just that. I just think comedy is, is huge there. And, and so I don't know what it is. I think it's whether audiences take it more seriously or there was a time in the 90s where bill hicks came to the uk because the us didn't get him and um we were pushing for for that type of really strong comedy but for me now i think the uk is lagging behind really badly um and and there's a lot of safe safe stuff on tv um or, or should I say only say stuff on TV? So, yeah, I think America isn't afraid of risks. And I think with risks, you can, they can really pay off.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. The only other stand-up I've had on the show also uh, mainly liked American comedians. I also mainly like American comedians. So it's really, uh, I'm sure. Who <laughs> you like? One, tell yeah. me. Uh, Norm Macdonald.
1: Oh, for real. He's so funny. Yeah. His alcoholism thing is <laughs> is just a killer right I should have said that as well but yeah he's um he's really
0: really good yeah uh Patrice O'Neill he's one who died oh my god back. how yeah. did I
1: not save him and Cat Williams but oh, yeah, Patrice yeah, is Williams. obviously way up there like you watch his HBO special he's got so many good jokes um the one I, one that really stands out is when he was like, oh, you know, the ethic of Mexican people. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like um, when he's in a hotel, he's <laughs> like, um, she's like opening, trying to open the door and the doors on the, the hotel doors on a chain. And she's like, I must make your bed. I must, I must, I must make your bed. It's so good.
0: <laughs> so good. And
1: also the Pepsi Cola rapist, like that's way oh, up there. Oh yeah,
0: that's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did a stint in the UK because in the UK there was a time where comedy was, uh, you know, I hate to say this, it sounds really, it um, sounds just defeatist, but like it was really um, edgy. It was really like raw, let's say you could say stuff, but now it feels like um, that's that's not encouraged. Do you think
0: that's just in London or do you think that's the, the Greater England as well?
1: I mean, I think live, it's... Um, is not so much an issue as on TV because live, you know, you can say whatever you want and, and it, you know, it doesn't have to be liked or not liked. So I think, yeah, no, I think it's not live as, as much as TV.
0: That's interesting. Um, is What do you think causes that?
1: Um, I think that there's mainstream audiences or, or let's call them family audiences that it's trying to appeal to as opposed to what's funny. Because I'm not saying safe comedy isn't funny, per se, even though it might not be perhaps um, to our taste. There's a there's a market for it, but how did it become the whole market? Oh, you're still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, three. I was trying to have a dramatic pause for <laughs> <us>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can't deal with them. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I've lost track. What were you saying again?
1: So, yeah, no, I mean, I guess I was just kind of like, it's a good question. It's a good question. How did how did it get there? And I think, uh, I think we we cared what the audience thinks too much, um, and it's weird when people are too ready to be offended. Mm. Like you know what I mean. Like they're prepared to be offended. That that's their calling, or that's that's kind of like empowering for them, because you're allowed to. Patrice said it actually. Patrice O'Neill he said it. You're you're allowed to not agree with what the comedian is saying. We're not there. It's not like a preacher where, you know, we're trying to convert you to our school of thought. It's just ideas and thoughts. And, you know, you you can, like you said, you can let yourself laugh because you shouldn't really have to hold that in. Like what makes you laugh should be reflex and instant. So you can laugh and then still be like, no, I didn't really agree with that. But you could still have had a kind of humorous reaction to it. But I feel like we've become so... I don't even know if it's self-aware, because I think if we were self-aware, we wouldn't maybe do that. I think it's self-aggrandisement.
0: Yeah.
1: A little bit self-important. I don't know to what end, because it's not a funny time. Uh, It feels like if you want to say stuff, people really don't want to hear it. But then everybody's so opinionated. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't they just leave it to the comedians at least we make it funny? I don't know.
0: That's so funny. I'd listened to a few interviews with you oh, no. uh, and other people. And I I noticed in the two cases I listened to that uh, both the hosts seemed quite on edge about offending you. Uh, do you <laughs> I'm guessing that's to do with political correctness. But how do you think that dynamic of people not wanting to offend you gets in the way of like true friendships?
1: Yeah, that's a brilliant observation, I would say, Ross. And I think that's the problem that we're having again I'm so sorry and I can't believe I didn't say Patrice before you but like what Patrice would always say is that he doesn't want legislated equality let's say or legislated likeness like I don't want you to like me because you're supposed to like me or because it's the right thing it should come from like a genuine place and so where people are worried about saying the wrong thing around me there's an element of it gonna always be formal um, around us rather than close because I think sometimes, you know, when you're with your close friends, you're not worried about what you're saying because there's other things there. There's trust, there's like, there's understanding and there's compassion. But when that's because you're, you know, there with your heart. Right. But I think when you're on edge, you're there probably from your cerebral, you're there with your head and you're just watching, you know, oh, my God, don't say terrorism. Don't say terrorism. Don't say terrorism. Maybe that was. <laughs> going on in their head right and so that's all you're thinking about and you're you're forgetting that I'm a fucking person right now you know I think that's what all too common is dehumanizing other people that you maybe don't have too many in your circle and that's fine but like you know I think people just sometimes maybe they're not honest about them with themselves about what it is because it's not unless you want me to it's not really my job to unpick and unpack that for you you, you need to kind of look at yourself and understand why you are so worried or anxious and on edge yourself. It's strange for me, but, you know, I think it's, it's, I can't, you can't force someone to be your friend, I don't think. And uh, that's what this symbolises to me is that we probably won't be, but there's a lot of internal stuff that that person hasn't done because they're worried about, I think it's so weird. You're white, right, Russ? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so weird, right? how white people are so worried about being called racist or considered racist like that's so weird isn't it
0: yeah yeah this don't is an think... observation i've made that uh other races don't seem to worry as much about it on the whole
1: yeah I, it's difficult to measure.
0: It seems to be quite a big taboo now. Yeah, obviously it's not a good thing to be racist, but it's gone beyond that where people are worried about people thinking they're racist.
1: Yeah, and I think, again, I'm hopefully it's the last time I bring it out. I might not, but like Patrice said that, you know, the white people on the street are not the oppressor. You know, it's, it's like bigger than just a singular white person. It's like systems and stuff like that, systems and institutions and and real entities with power. But to be honest with you, we do have a lot in common. And I think the fear of being racist and stuff, it kind of helps separate the fact that we actually do have some stuff in common, like, you know, that we're people, we we enjoy comedy, whatever it is. We have fears, we have people important to us, like family, we have, you know, commonalities, but I think this whole thing, it can kind of just make you forget that.
0: Yeah. I find that super interesting as well as the people who are most sort of concerned about that and may act weird around someone of a different race are the people who are sort of wanting to understand other races or, yeah, it's it's really odd dynamic.
1: Yeah, I I always say that. I don't think guilt gets anybody anywhere or, you know, that type of guilt is not really helpful. So it's just, I know that people who are not consumed by that guilt are quite free um, and able to say things that may be construed as racist but are not racist. And, you know, we need to be able to have conversations where there might be constructive kind of learnings from that or mistakes that you kind of move on from but whilst we're still in limbo which is how I would describe the, the kind of interactions I have with the, the people that you said who were uncomfortable around me I think I, I would describe it best as limbo where you're kind of never going to move forward because there's so many blocks it's very one-dimensional and there's only so much kind of ground you'll be able to cover because they're very restricted and uncomfortable. And so, you know, you, you're just barely going to cover the basics.
0: How did you end up doing the podcast with Monty?
1: Yes. So um, the podcast we had was called No Country for Young Women. And little plug is still online on BBC Sounds and stuff or wherever you get your podcast. So you can still listen to it indefinitely. Um, we did four series um over three years and I started the podcast actually and Monty was a friend who I asked to join me. But basically I had been doing comedy and uh me and this person from the BBC, Eli, we got chatting and uh I kind of gave him a pitch about no country, which was basically like what it's like being an ethnic similar to the things that we've just discussed, mm. like for example working in a call center, you know, where do you stop and start where can you be yourself uh, like you know because I felt that in the call center I would have to adapt myself and be a little bit more corporate and you know with your family you're a little bit different with your friends you're a bit different on comedy you know you're a bit different so it was kind of looking at those types of things and how you're a minority in a, in a majority kind of things and, and how that works so yeah it was good
0: how did you get involved with the BBC did you go to them or they come to you
1: Well I had done a short for Ramadan on iPlayer which you can still watch as well I think it's called Things I Mastered as a British Muslim so that was on iPlayer and so um, the person at the BBC had seen that and then got in touch and we just got chatting about ideas for a podcast and we were really lucky it was when BBC Sounds was being launched which was three years ago and so we were like one of the first podcasts that the BBC Sounds did and it was cool man I learned so much Um, and that's why I'm so excited that you're doing this podcast and I think it's a great way of having conversations and it's cheap right (laughs) so I don't know I think you, you learn a lot it's an example of a door that you kind of can go through via comedy I was a comedian so I was very lucky to be able to get into podcasting which is a different skill I would say you know um, you can't always just have the (laughs) ha-has you know you have to be able to present an interview and listen and there's all other skills that you kind of grow along the way which is great
0: I agree on that yeah doing a podcast is awesome I'm surprised how well I am keeping conversations with people actually that was a bit of a worry at first but Uh I found that if you indulge yourself enough in someone's art then you can sort of know them enough to talk to them
1: Prep is so important. I'm gonna agree with you on that, Ross. Because nothing to lie. Like there was I think at the beginning it was a bit like winging it or wanting it to be spontaneous, and so not prepping enough. But actually, the prep can be really useful because if you know or know of their work, as you say, the audience loves it when you can kind of like refer. It makes it more more rich. It makes it more kind of interactive, where you're not kind of talking to them like um you don't know anything it just makes it feel like it's more conversational and and I think it kind of like plays to the strengths of podcasts and also like for example we had Rose McGowan on and so I listened to a bunch of podcasts that she had done and so it was kind of interesting to be able to ask other questions on the back of the answers she'd given to those
0: I'm not sure who that is actually (laughs) Who is Rose
1: McGowan? Rose McGowan. Yeah, no, don't worry. She's basically like this Hollywood actress. She's done a whole bunch of movies and she was on Charmed. And also, uh, you know, like the Me Too movement. She was quite an activist, I would say, in the Me Too movement as well.
0: Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I can't think of her facially, actually. So how come you stop the podcast?
1: Well, this is a good question. And uh, I'm not sure how much I can say I'm joking. <laughs> well, I think we have a good run you know like it was three years and four series I think to be honest we hit the brief so the question was like where can you be yourself or you know how do you live like our experiences of life and love in like a white world right and so I think we kind of we had enough time to look into it and and um yeah I think it was better to go out at a high than kind of like carry on and then it just to not be popular it was really popular so I wouldn't have ended it (laughs) but I think it just came to an actual end
0: oh okay that's interesting and had your perspectives changed at all since you started
1: um very good question Mr Ross you are very prepped (laughs) I would say I learned a lot for real like because when I was starting it I didn't know what I didn't know and so having all those conversations with the guests it showed me what I didn't know really and how much diverse people from ethnic backgrounds like black and brown people how much we actually are doing like we had a vegan Nigerian cook on for example I know it sounds really ignorant on my part but I didn't know how much Nigerian cooking was already vegan and um, I I know that there's quite a lot of uh, vegetarian agents and stuff like that so you know it's just I guess it, it kind of yeah it shows you that your experiences are not just your experiences because we would have conversations with loads of guests who who felt the same. I guess what was really fun was that, you know, we were having these conversations which were so rare, but yet the experiences were so, so common. And so I was glad that we were able to be like one of the first podcasts in the UK to to really talk about race, which I don't think was as commonplace as it is now three years later. I think it's a lot more... Widespread, which is good. It's a lot more prevalent, but at the time, three years ago, like nobody was having these conversations.
0: Ah, uh, that's interesting. Do you think that's out of politeness?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think from so many things, Ross. But I think one of the things is, as an ethnic person, you know, it's your family kind of really encourages you to assimilate, and so part of assimilating is not kind of highlighting where you don't assimilate, right? To just kind of like keep your head down, and part of it is. Maybe, hmm, why don't we have this conversation? It's a really good point. I don't know. I think it's just to to fit in, really. I guess sometimes you don't know what you want from the other person. And so I guess what we do is put masks on in different spheres of life, like work and friendships and wherever, and you just kind of get along with things. But it, it doesn't harm to have the odd conversation now and again, to just kind of recalibrate
0: Oh, that's interesting. Say, I think that's very common among everyone yeah. is to sort of have a different mask when they're at work, or a different mask when they're with friends, or on a stage in comedy as well. You felt like there was an extra element of a cultural mask where you didn't want to rock the boat too much. Is that what you're saying?
1: Well, I think I think, guess what the main thing I'm saying is, in this country, three years ago, we really did not talk about race, or and sometimes I guess there's a time and a place for it is the point whereas in the podcast we were unashamedly having those conversations it was a good outlet to have those conversations because like let's take comedy for example there are urban nights like black comedy nights or asian comedy nights and then there's like the mainstream so it it seemed like there were certain things i could do in an asian night that might not go as well, like because the references might not be understood in a mainstream night, and some of the ideas that I was looking at in the mainstream nights might not fit into an Asian night per se. So it's just about. I think it's fascinating, really, why there is that kind of separation. I think it's about what you can relate to, and I guess that's what we were exploring in the in the podcast is that there is this sometimes, you know, gray area. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I think okay. uh, almost like people who haven't watched a certain film, they might not get the reference.
1: Yeah, like, I don't know. I think it's really hard in comedy as well because you don't want to be hacky. And so, like, I remember when I was starting out, I was really reluctant to do anything about, like, arranged marriages and stuff because it was, like, the cliché and you don't want to be the cliché. I think everybody obviously has identity um, issues. It's just they think people of colour um, have that race element where... If you've moved to a different area, like regardless of your color, you still have that outside of view. It might not be quite the same as being a different color, but like you still, if you move country, for example, you kind of like know what you used to, what your old country was like and then your new country is like and what the difference is and what you miss and and the adjustments you've had to make to kind of settle in.
0: You were born in the UK, but but were your parents from India? yes because I live in Brighton now, but I was originally from near Oxford. Okay. And I feel sort of like pull from that, like a, I almost feel a connection to the area of Oxfordshire that I don't feel the connection here. Oh. Maybe it's because I grew up there. Do you have the same thing with India, even though you never lived there because you've got like heritage from there? Or do you have more of a connection with the area you grew up in?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, i mean, I'm born and raised in Leighton. So, I mean, I think, I think where you are born is kind of like you do have this kind of special respect for it, let's say, or I would say that about Leighton because I think it's a quite a nice part of town. Yeah, I think it's real. But I think for me, the thing about India is more that what I didn't have rather than what I did have with it. Like I feel like I could have explored it more, but um, it's, it's a it's a different place, really. I think so whenever I've gone there, it's kind of like there's no stress in India, like You could have power outages and you could have um, your water could be off, for example, for a little bit. But nobody is stressed out. So spiritually, I feel like India is really chilled out and a calm place. And so it's a very different place because London is very stressful. It's very fast paced. You can get upset over really, really silly things. But I think that's for me is really interesting about India is that it's such a chill place and, and everything could be like you know quite bleak or quite austere or humble let's say but you know you just kind of like i don't know there's a different kind of approach it's a lot more laid back
0: that's uh, funny you say that actually because recently there was some kind of issue with the water mains in brighton and like there was brown oh. water coming out of all the taps <gasps> and everyone oh was my- going fucking mental
1: <laughs> oh <laughs> including my me, too, god like, no <laughs> How long did that last? That sounds really bad in the lockdown, right? Almost a day
0: in total, but like it, it's fine. I managed to go down the shop and grab some water, and there was water in all the shops, so it wasn't too bad. But yeah.
1: but was the toilets working? Because I'm not I'm not lying, Ross. The same thing happened in East London like a couple of weeks ago. Um, but it wasn't brown water; it was just no water. Like the water pressure oh, had um, yeah. dropped because of a burst. So it was really difficult to flush the toilet, which was, I, I can't complain because, you know, one of the toilets was actually working and I had bottled water at home. Like, it's funny that we both had that recently.
0: <laughs> That's mad. Yours is worse though. I'd much rather have flowing water than...
1: Yeah, you could play around with it, right? You could, yeah. I suppose...
0: Because even though you can, it doesn't look like you can drink it, but you still flush the toilet and I still had a shower in it, so... <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, okay, fair enough. Thank you. Fair child. enough. I <laughs> thought you'd make use of the beach and the, the water there. But what was really funny is media—they uh, started showing pictures of people from East London like buying loads of water at the supermarket. It's the same way uh, there was all the toilet roll hoarding um, <laughs> yeah. at the beginning of lockdown, and I was like, "Oh well, water is our toilet roll."
0: So uh, you said you were writing comedy before you ever got on stage. Do you remember what your first joke was?
1: No, I think it was really bad. I think it was something about Jay-Z. <laughs> <laughs> I really can't remember it. But like what I do remember is like writing a whole bunch of pages and then like giving it to my friend and my friend being like, You're saying really good and then just me having like a dramatic moment and being like, Well, I just need you to really be supportive right now. This is the best I have. And I think I guess what all I can say about what I've learned is that like I feel like you just have to kind of like keep growing like jim jeffrey's said in ComCom com podcast that basically when when a joke works you need to, to stop doing it and start writing new and so it's about not getting too attached to the joke and um yeah just like keep pushing yourself because there's so much inside you and so much going on that you can draw from
0: so yeah you said in uh earlier podcast but this is a while ago that your parents didn't know about your comedy to be fair mine don't really (laughs) that not that i have told them and i've told them about the podcast but i've also told them that they probably shouldn't listen to it because they won't like it but (laughs) Uh, do your parents know now
1: oh um no i told you know i told my brother and stuff but like to be honest with you i feel like with Asian parents like you need to really have something to tell them like oh I've got this Hollywood movie deal or something like that and I just well a I don't have that but b I obviously don't need that because you know I just don't feel like I need their approval or their input right now and I'm not sure how kind of supportive it would be
0: I hear about uh, different (laughs) comedians taking their parents to shows and stuff and I was like I'd be horrified if my mum heard some of my jokes
1: (laughs) (laughs) i think they would be as well right so i think it's probably sometimes easier if they just don't know
0: yeah mutual benefit to that yeah (laughs) more radical interpretations of islam don't have a very favorable perspective on free speech have you had any backlash at all for the sort of jokes you do
1: um that's a funny question actually in birmingham i did like a charity event a few years ago and my stuff was a lot tamer but apparently not tame enough. I think I just said something like, like sleep with like these people are going to, you know, ISIS and they're not gonna sleep with me if they're going there. <laughs> something like that, basically. <laughs> and yeah, it did get some complaints. Ross saying lied the next day there was like seventeen imams complaining about my mild reference to sex. Which is annoying. I was a bit put out but then, you know, oh. I guess the thing is, sometimes these events are like fully family events, which, as you can appreciate, like what we're doing as comedians, like we're we're just doing gigs at a club or something where it's adults only. So you're not thinking about there being children there. And obviously I wasn't thinking uh, about children being there either. I think it's difficult because, you know, as an act, you have your interpretation of comedy and as audiences, they have their expectations of Comedy, particularly when it comes from somebody like me. And when they don't marry up, then, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of, you know, friction.
0: Yeah, so there was complaints, but you didn't get threatened at all.
1: No, 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 never, never, never. I've been lucky enough, like, you know, it's never been dangerous. I don't think that, it hasn't been dangerous at all. That's good to hear. It's just, it's a matter of taste, oh, you okay. know, and a matter of what people you know appreciate comedically
0: is that annoying on some level that you wish you could appeal to a muslim audience but you don't feel like you can or is it literally just because there was kids there
1: i think you know it's a really really rich question and i think that if i'm honest with you sometimes you know you are appealing to them but they're not laughing <laughs> <laughs> you you probably had those gigs where afterwards i don't know if you have but like i've had those gigs sometimes where after the gig like Someone comes up to you and say, That was really good. But they did not laugh throughout the whole thing. And so it's kind of like, uh, it's like the whole thing with comedy is you need that feedback and energy to kind of give it back and, and you kind of like build. And so I feel like that audiences are becoming a little bit more diverse. But yeah, I think a lot more white people go out to comedy. But yeah, luckily in, in London, like you do, it is mixed, it's a bit more diverse. But comedy shouldn't be about. I think if someone wants to be your friend, they're going to be your friend. Bill Hicks was like, if you you want to be my friend and if you don't laugh, you don't want to be my friend. And so I just see it as people who get you and don't get you.
0: Yeah, no, what you said about uh, people looking at you and not laughing and that you feel like they yeah. might find it. It's, that's kind of like being at a job interview and you don't know whether the person likes you or not. <laughs>
1: Yeah, 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 and I think it's similar to what we started at the beginning, where you shouldn't repress your laughter, right? Like, if something tickles you, you just laugh, but it's a strange thing where people aren't letting the release happen, and um, I don't know how much audiences realise that they have a job <laughs> when it comes to the being in the audience, like, they have a part to play. It's not huge, but when they don't do it, it kind of does affect the overall Yeah. <laughs> you know the overall uh ambience <laughs> or experience
0: uh you know when people do find things funny but don't laugh i wonder how common that is and if they enjoy going to comedy shows
1: i think i'm honest with you i think with asian audiences i think if they're worried about someone looking at them laughing so it's an ad or of jeopardy for them which is sad it's like a safe example if it's a younger person but then they've got an uncle or auntie in the audience so they they don't want to be cracking up as that person look at them and they might have to then explain it or or apologize for it. I don't know. I Mm. don't know. But it's just, it's a thought that you have, right? Is that maybe that's the reason. And then another thing I would say is that obviously with white audiences, they can drink so they are relaxed and that's loosened up so that they're, you know, able to have a good time and not be in their head as much, which is another thing which Asian audiences, obviously most, Asian, well, maybe that's a sweeping generalization, but Muslim audiences definitely would not be drinking. So they're a lot more sober, which, uh, you know.
0: Uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it from a not drinking perspective. No, I don't actually drink and mm. uh, I laugh just fine. And I'm not, I'm never worried about anyone thinking. <laughs> but sometimes you yeah. do, you're do. you the only person laughing at something and you're over there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> never bothers me. Yeah, I
1: don't think it's nothing to be self-conscious about really because like whatever makes you laugh is what makes you laugh. Even if you're the only one who did laugh, it's like whatever, right? It still made you laugh. It's, it doesn't have to be such a big thing.
0: So did you know many comedians before you started doing comedy?
1: No. And to be honest with you, I don't think that helped me. I feel like there's people in certain circles that can help one another or there's people who are more loners let's say for want of a better term who um kind of find things out for themselves i think things like facebook have helped bridge the gap because you might not know someone but your friends on facebook or you're connected somehow and so many of acquiring gigs is done through those social media platforms now so i would say like you know okay so the pro thing about being the loner is kind of your thing so you have a bit more control over it and independence I think because sometimes feedback can be too much, like comedians always critiquing your set and stuff that like can make you too much in your head and overthink. That's not always what you want, really, because you need to figure a lot of it out yourself. I think if you're in a group, then you know you can really help one another and you've got all of that kind of like collaboration. So, I don't know, maybe a healthy mix of the two would be good. What would you say you are, Russ?
0: What was the question? You say I'm a loner or no know loads of people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's yeah, a funny term. Sorry to <laughs> use that term. But yeah, do you have a lot of comedian friends like now you're starting out or are you just more kind of solo?
0: Yeah, no, I've chatted to a few people. But yeah, no, I didn't know anyone before, I don't think.
1: Yeah, I think a good rule that I seem to have observed is that like being nice to people is, is never going to be a bad thing because it's such a small world. Hmm. And uh, people talk regardless. So if you're really nice, like that's just always good to have that kind of good impression so that, you know, that, that can't hurt. I can't say I've always done that, Ross, but it's a good, you know. <laughs> uh, it's something I wish I had been more steadfast towards the beginning, let's say that.
0: <laughs> oh, really?
1: Well, I mean...
0: Did you come in swinging or saying Did you have something to prove you felt or what was it?
1: Well, I don't know, man. I think it's, you're learning a lot when you're getting into it. There's so many new entities like you've got promoters you've got bookers you've got hosts you've got audiences you've got so many things that you're kind of navigating um and i don't know you sometimes you just need some space from all of that and and you don't know what people's agendas are and you don't really know who they are or how they are and so you need to kind of think about kind of staying afloat with all of that and still being funny and still being kind of polite and uh wanting another gig out of it and all this and the other there's so much going on isn't there
0: yeah i totally agree uh well (laughs) i hope being nice will get me somewhere
1: (laughs) it will it will
0: hopefully i'll be funny (laughs) (laughs) well i think i'm funny but i'm not sure if other people do We'll have to see.
1: (laughs) Well, that's the game, isn't it? (laughs) it, Our game is to convince them that we are.
0: Only time will tell. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What have you got coming up?
1: That's a good question. I'm probably going to start a new podcast, um, but I don't have a lot of information on that. But I'm I'm working on some ideas and um, writing. I hope that will go somewhere. I've written a few sitcom pilots that haven't gone anywhere, uh, just for anybody listening out there. So if you want one of those... (laughs) uh no i'm just kidding but you know i have you do i think getting into sitcom writing is is kind of a whole another beast and so you learn from the things that didn't go so well so i'd love to write as well and i'm digging and it's just not as frequent as it was prior to lockdown and yeah i'm trying to write a book as well and so just a few different things going on
0: wow you're so busy
1: (laughs) thank you <laughs> i look
0: forward to hearing your podcast do you know what it's going to be about yet or are you just going to interview people or
1: i love interviewing people but i don't know to be honest with you because it's, it's kind of like literally no country just ended this week so oh, um, i thought it ended
0: a while ago for some reason
1: no 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 well we were talking about it for a while i think i think i was trying to like grieve publicly <laughs> but yeah it literally the last episode was tuesday and so i'm just in a very early kind of planning stage of what to do next so unfortunately it's not really uh, crystallized at this point
0: uh what have you learned from doing that no country that you plan to take on to your next project
1: okay you, you're full of good questions today russ okay what have i learned from well i think i don't know uh that's a really hard question i think listening is good and and prep as we said earlier and i think just being open-minded to people everybody has a story and uh just to kind of like knowing that someone has a story and just how to get it out of them and being funny (laughs) (laughs) it's always helpful isn't it ross it's like try and bring some giggles along the way
0: what was it like having a co-host
1: It was different because so me and Monty were friends for a while. We worked at the call center together, but uh, we obviously both got into podcasting at the same time. But I had been doing comedy for like years. And when you're doing stand up, you're on your own and and you kind of like have the stage. And so it was a good experience, like because I think there were some things we agreed on, but some things that we kind of like had very different views on. And so you had that kind of ability to kind of like look at things from different perspectives. And I thought that was really good because even if it wasn't my experience, I was able to see how it was for others. So that was good. And yeah, it was, I don't know. I think it was fun. Like the first three series, we kind of did more joint episodes with the guests. But like in the last series, we were both able to do solo episodes, and so it kind of really shifted it up a gear. And now I know, and I have more sympathy and empathy for what you do, us as the sole host, because when I have multiple guests, like as the only person. Like you know, you notice the difference because when there's two of you. It's kind of like a tag team against the, the guests, not not in that way, but you know what I mean. Like you both, you've you've asked the question, and the other person talking, and it gives you space. Whereas when you're the only host, and you kind of really have to have your wits about you, and kind of be there, and and keep it moving, and and you know hit all the points you want. And I love podcasting. I think um what what, what I really learned as well was that you can't ask everything. So to be really sure about what it is that you want to get from this, because like I can talk a lot, as I'm sure, you know, (laughs) as most comedians can, like, you know, you, you really are inquisitive, but actually you only have a set, a lot of time with that guest. Mm. And so to make the most of it and um, to, you know, break the ice and then get into it and then maybe some summary and stuff like that and plugs or whatever. But like, yeah, it's just about, using your time
0: uh
1: as, as much as you can to get what you want from it
0: did you have any uh interviews that went really wrong
1: <laughs> um yes actually i wouldn't um well that's a hard question now <laughs> <laughs> i think it was more because the reaction was on um i'm not going to go into a specific but what i would say is yes because you don't know what's going to trigger you And so where you were a bit triggered, and I think it was just kind of like remembering that there's a whole thing going on and kind of like learning from that. So I don't think it would happen again. But it was fun. It was still fun. I remember we had a dating coach on one of the episodes and I got really excited. And uh, I think it kind of like changed the shape of where we were going to go because I got literally giddy. So I don't think I would do that again. So it's about composure, but it was still fun.
0: Oh, what was your favorite episode?
1: Another amazing question. Um, There's quite a few, but I'm going to go with like Jade Thirlwall from Little Mix came on um oh, really? at the beginning of series four. And yeah, and she's so amazing. And she was talking about how um she's like, you know, she has Arab heritage that she didn't really get a chance to explore as a, a younger person. And she's now kind of like, you know, embracing that a little bit more. And, exploring that and I thought that was amazing because like she has such a large following and so for somebody of her stature to be able to have the courage to have, to kind of have that conversation in a, such a public sphere as well, I thought it was remarkable. She has such character and she was really brilliant. Like she'd really taken time to think about the topics she talked to her mum the day before and What a lovely person.
0: Oh, that's really good. So she kind of did research in regards to the interview as well.
1: Yeah, she was really well read. And, you know, I thought it was really exciting because, unfortunately, like Arab culture doesn't get a lot of attention. Or if it does, it's particularly one type of attention. So it was nice to have uh, her. Because even if it's not that culture, for example, it would just help people who sometimes have to adjust and, and really not look into other aspects of their heritage so she was just a fun person like she was really really cool she like it was really exciting to research her and get to see things from her perspective.
0: Ah, Excellent um before I let you go have you got any plugs you want to put in?
1: If people follow me on social media I would love that I'm on Twitter and Instagram.
0: Do you have a website at all?
1: I do it's Hmm. www.sadiaasmat.com
0: Oh, yeah, that's why I found your email, actually. So, silly question.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. Thank you for finding me. Oh, that's right. I love your work.
0: Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I enjoy your tweets. <laughs> oh, thank I actually you. went through uh, to have a look at the ones I'd liked, and it was literally all the ones where you'd said the word dick in it, and I was like, I don't know what that says about <laughs> me.
1: <laughs> I know, that's one of my favourite subjects
0: ah cool oh ah, well thanks so much for coming on
1: oh thank you for having me you've been amazing um i'm really excited about your, your project and, and hope long may it continue and grow D-R-E-B-E-N-A.
0: hey thanks for listening and thank you to sadia for joining me for more on sadia check out her website sadiaasmat.com at sadia underscore azmats on instagram and at sadia underscore asmats underscore on twitter give us a review tell your it. friends and that's it bye